But yeah, uh, my name is, is Bruce, it's my wife Sharon, and we've had um, really good, uh, really blessed by the ministry here and connections with pastors and, and others here. So really thankful, and this is a very good conference. And you know, I kind of regret not pushing it more because it's so um, it's so affordable and accessible. And I think this is my second or third, and they've all been really, including this one, have been really helpful. Um, Ryan asked me to uh, talk about embracing risk in missions. Um, so. That, you know, with everything going on in our culture and all, I'm thinking about this a lot. So I feel like this is sort of my tendency in general. And in this case, I just kept, I really studied a lot and collated a lot just because I, I find it fascinating, the whole issue of risk aversion. And so some of it might be redundant. And I'm going to talk a little bit about risk aversion in general because if we're risk averse in our hearts or in our homes, neighborhoods, schools, if, if it starts there, we're gonna tend to be less risk adverse overseas. And conversely, the more we take uh, prudent, wise risks for the sake of the gospel in our own homes, schools, workplaces, the more likely we're gonna be to push further. Um, my grandparents were pioneer missionaries in the Philippine Islands. I kid you not, I have pictures of my grandpa with pith helmet, bullets across his chest. I mean, it was in very remote area of a place called Mindanao. And uh, that, was, that was back in the day when, you know, you went over on a boat and you, you couldn't just leave very readily. And um, so my mother grew up there in the Philippines and two uncles, and uh, they were captured by the Japanese in 1941, and they were 42, and they were um, incarcerated for three and a half years and, and rescued literally um, on the day they were going to be executed in a place called Los Baños, south of Manila. And my mom ended up meeting my dad at Wheaton, and then they went back to the Philippines uh, for about 30 years. And my dad became a director of a mission, so he traveled all over Southeast Asia. Um, and then we have eight children in our family. Uh, my mom died when I was six of cancer, and six months later, um, a man who was uh, really doing pioneer work in the hill tracks between Myanmar, formerly uh, Burma, and Bangladesh, uh, died, he was poisoned and died, and his widow and her three kids, that widow married my dad five years after my mom died, so we had then eight children, and went back to the Philippines for my high school, my junior high and high school years, and my brother, <coughs> I don't know why I'm saying all this. It's like I have all these notes, too many notes, and now I'm, I have some home movies, too. <laughs> uh, but my, my brother, uh, Harold, he's 11 days older than me. So when we were 11, I got a brother. You know, I have a big brother, six or seven years, six years older than me than Harold, and he went back to Bangladesh 
to finish the translation his father started. And um, he now has cancer, Harold does, and he and his wife have been there for 35 years, and he's so hoping to get clearance to go back. Uh, so we'll see. Um, and then I, I have a brother who's, uh, my, old, my oldest brother is a pedi pediatrician in West Africa, and my little sister Susie's husband's an orthopedic surgeon in West Africa. Um, different hospitals, but in the same small country of Togo. Um, and then Ryan mentioned there's a couple in our church who are just remarkable. Um, they're in their mid-30s. They have two little ones, and they are um, they're hoping to go to a place where there's no known Christians, and it's illegal to, to preach. It, it, so it's a, it's a tremendous, very fragile project we're trying to help them with now. Um, you know, it's one of these things where you, you, you learn, the, you get involved in a business, learn the language, then start translating, and then hopefully in time see a church grow. But it's a very, um, they are not risk adverse, and it's been a great it's helped a lot of us because it's like, what, if, what is my excuse, you know, when you see them? But they're very humble. They don't, they don't think they're all that. But, well, let me just pray. Lord, thank you for this church, for this conference. Lord, help us. Our hearts are fearful, unnecessarily fearful, Lord. And I, I pray in some small way this would be helpful. Lord, starting with myself and bless each person here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So embracing risk and missions, the, the problem is that we are increasingly risk adverse. So risk is not something we embrace. And again, that I think that problem begins in our hearts. And then, you know, it says in Proverbs, out of the overflow of your heart, everything proceeds out of the overflow of our hearts. Proverbs 4.23. So heart, if, if there's unbiblical aversions in our hearts, it's going to affect all of our ministry. Uh, we're consumed with fear and anxiety, and Jordan's covered, covering that well. Um, I read in the New York Times a few years ago, um, a guy named Mike Epstein, he said, an undercurrent of trauma runs through ordinary life, shot through as it is with the poignancy of impermanence. If we are not suffering uh, from post-traumatic stress disorder, we are suffering from pre-traumatic stress disorder, like always waiting for something to happen. And of course, that's only been exacerbated. It's only increased uh, in the last couple of years. Um, anxiety and fear is it's part of our hearts uh, since the fall. Um, we're plagued with, with, with both um, a, alien sin, that is things that happen around us, pandemics, violence, cancer, all the things, you know, like Job says, as, far, as sparks fly upward, so we are born to trouble. It's all around us, but it's also within us. Um, we, we, we're, we're plagued. and. Uh, this guy, uh, Scott Stossel, he's, he's not a believer, but he's written um, about anxiety. He's a very successful man, and he kind of took people by surprise when 
he wrote this book called My Age of Anxiety, and he said, to some people I may appear calm, but if you could peer beneath the surface, you would see that I'm like a duck, paddling, paddling, paddling. I think that's true of a lot of people, especially in our current cultural and political moment. Like, just consider COVID, you know, the, the virus itself, but then all the manifold implications and issues uh, that push out from it. You know, ongoing ambiguity and confusion, um, social isolation and what that's done to people. It's not good for a man or a woman to be alone, but that's been uh, put upon us <coughs> legitimately to some extent and perhaps illegitimately. Uh, but one way or another, it's happened. It increases loneliness and depression, deepening divisions even among people in the church. You know, political upheaval, uh, increased violence, declining economy, erosion of uh, gender realities and norms and, and even language. You know, my, my son, he just got married, and I'm thankful to say he has a lot of friends in really in dark places that he brings to our house. And, like, a lot of the dysphoria stuff in the language, it seems sometimes like it's from another planet, but it makes it more real to us. Like, this is a real person struggling with this issue, but it's, it's anxiety-producing. Uh, the way things are changing, diminishment of long-standing freedoms, cancel culture, a great problem, you know. It's the, it's the new legalism, and there's, there's no forgiveness. It's, it's so sad to me, like, uh, how, a, a, you know, I, I just want to say, to let people know, if the gospel teaches us that we all deserve to be canceled, and if anyone looked into our past, you know, even as careful as we might be, there's stray remarks, things we've done, you know. That we need, the world is in need of so much more forgiveness. Um, but it's interesting. Remember the uh, re remember the milieu, the culture, the political climate of the early church. It's helpful to remember that. Like I'm preaching through Mark. Mark wrote to Christians in Rome who were living under Nero. <coughs> So as troubling as our political moment is, it, it really pales in comparison. Like a lot of our fears are fears of impression management, fear of what people will think of us. You know, and that could change, but we're not likely to be put into the arena or, or used to light up the emperor's garden when he's having a party. It also interests me how little the New Testament talks about politics. They're so driven by the gospel. Um, not to say that that doesn't matter. Uh, so fear begets fight or flight. And Sharon said, or fright, when you get like paralyzed. But that's kind of like flight. So, you know, psychologists have said for years, it makes it's common sense, that people who are afraid, either you fight or you run. That tends to be... What happens? Both of those responses war against missions. And there's nothing new under the sun, you know. 
was considering preaching uh, on Peter recently, and on the same night, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus. He's, you know, he got afraid and he he fought, and you know, I and my boys, it's like, yeah, Peter, you know, but Jesus was like less enthusiastic. Right? He had this fight mentality. Hours later, he's afraid of a servant girl while Jesus is boldly putting his life on the line with a courage we can't even imagine. He's cowering in the shadows of the courtyard seeking to preserve his life. He denied Jesus three times. And I wonder if I would have been any better. But they both war against the gospel a uh, fight is the act of danger that we may grow to hate enemies that our Lord tells us to love. Like this couple in our church, um, right now it looks, it, it looks like they're going to um, a country that is wall to wall and mostly radically uh, Muslim. And I remember going up the hill in Denver behind our house, watching the smoke coming up from the, the towers when they fell, you know? It's, it's very easy to be just dismiss people and have only be angry, you know? Um, or especially now with a lot of our culture is getting more and more polarized, so we get uh, xenophobic, this fear of strangers, uh, us versus them, uh, danger of self-righteousness. You know, the, Jesus says those who are confident of their own righteousness look down on everyone else. The digital noise leaves us with no room for love. The, the Internet keeps us in a very, it's, depending on what you listen to, whether you're more left or right, the internet keeps us in a very loud, noisy room. There's always fuel for anger and fear. I told some guys in my church, they got to stop listening to talk radio because they're angry all the time. And there's always new, fresh reasons to be angry. And if you're always angry, it, invariably there'll be sins of omission. Um, but then there's, I think the biggest danger is probably, by the way, I, I would say, and I hope we get to it, I think there is a time to stand up for what's right and to count the cost uh, very clearly. We just have to be really wise in this. But then there's the flight danger, the passive danger. We retreat into our evangelical cloisters, our evangelical bomb shelters, and that wars against the Great Commission and the pandemic, it's really interesting that, to, to me that the, the pandemic uh, fortified traits that are inimical to the gospel. So, for instance, social distancing. And it's complicated because the, I'm not saying there was never reason for this. But once that idea gets in your mind, social distancing... How can you, uh, how can we do missions? The whole point of missions is to overcome distance, to go to people. Or you look at Jesus touching lepers, 
uh, you, you see that the whole movement of the gospel is, is towards um, being with people. Look, look at the Good Samaritan. When Jesus says, this is what love of neighbor looks like, it's pretty radical. But now, we would give um, kudos to the priest and the Levite who kept their distance and played it safe. The guy named Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist at Baylor, and he, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and like 20 years ago, and he makes a lot of hay, like he goes through, long before the COVID stuff, he, he goes through history, and at all the worst plagues in history were strategic times for believers. Because uh, and he has he he gives ample evidence from sources back at these times that he, even secular sources that were amazed that when everyone else fled the Christians stayed at their own risk and when the dust settled the gospel flourished in those places so it's again th there's a lot to sort through uh, you know when Jordan said. Uh, how do you say goodbye to people, you know? It's the new benediction. Stay safe, stay safe. Why? Like, I could see, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, the Great Commission. Stay safe, guys. No. Um, he said, go into all the world. And he said, you, if you follow me, you're going to be like your master. Or, you know, the Apostle Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer through many persecutions do we enter the kingdom of God? Uh, difficult verses in many ways. So there is a lot of confusion. You know, and people, you know, I think there can be a cop-out. People can say, oh, it's just really complicated. But it is complicated, and we need to pray. Uh, so another danger to missions is, is we turn we turn good things into idols. So... And Jordan really touched on this, uh, that we, we baptize safety and, and comfort and ease. It, we, we essentially baptize self-interest. And again, it's tricky because these are good things. Uh, it, it's not wrong to be comfortable or to be successful financially and all those things. And this is where we need so much discernment. But we can make the good is the enemy of the best if it supplants it. And we could make these our highest good. Like now, it almost seems like that the only thing that matters is that you don't die. That is a very unbiblical place to be. Um, that you're comfortable and such. Um, so I think there's even and there's probably good in it, but even like all the talk about self care and I, I think there's. It's worth reflecting on that stuff. So anyway, over time we get increasingly paralyzed and risk adverse. Even psychology today said we rationalize a way of life that avoids anything that might be painful. And I'm reading a, a book I'd highly recommend. Um, Michael Reeves, Rejoice and Tremble. Um, and it's about the beauty and the joy of fearing the Lord. And he says, this, he talks about the staggering proliferation of bureaucratic red tape around health and safety, yet it does not make us feel safer. 
though we are more prosperous and secure, though we have more safety than any other society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. Prosperity encourages people to become more and more risk adverse. Or like Pink Floyd said, comfortably numb. And just for, uh, to me, the good example is parenting, right? And of course, we want to protect our children. You can almost feel that fiercely, you know? I, my adult children, sometimes I can think of them, and now I'm talking more about their emotional, spiritual well-being. I can ache just thinking. You want to do everything for your children, right? But this kind of what's called helicopter parenting can be harmful. Even the Atlantic, you know, which is hardly a conservative magazine, you know, had a whole series on the overprotected kid. And this was before the pandemic, but you know, we become so germophobic and it's shown that kids that, you know, if they're constantly in a the bubble, they'll actually be more prone to sickness at some point. Um, xenophobic, I remember many years ago, we have five kids and our two, two youngest weren't even born. And we lived in Caldwell and there's a beautiful park there. It's very safe, you know, and uh, our, our kids ran up ahead. Uh, our youngest was what, Connor was four maybe or? Whatever, they, they were young, but, you know, we let them run up ahead. We could see them, and they stopped at a bench with two elderly women. They're, they were all three kind of gregarious, as kids, many kids are, you know. We got up there, and these women said, we didn't initiate the conversation. This is in the 90s, right? We said, we don't care. We wish you would initiate a conversation with our kids. We want our children to talk to people in the park. Now, obviously, there's limits, right? Again, this is where we need discernment. Uh, but a childhood without any risk or danger is, is a good recipe for a phobia-filled adulthood. And, uh, you know, some of you know, uh, familiar with Jordan Peterson, you know, and uh, you know, he has these rules, two books, 12 rules in each, and the 11th rule in book one is don't bother children when they're skateboarding, you know? Like, let them be, I remember what my son, Brucey, who was a little bit infamous in our church, um, he's doing real well now, he just got married, and Sharon says he's our most emotionally healthy child because he had the least parenting. Um, because by the fifth one, you're just like, is he alive? Good. Uh, but we rented space in Denville at a high school, and one of the men in church came in. She said, did you know that your son was on top of the soda machine? Said, oh, really? Um, and I said, did he get down when you told him? He said, oh, yeah. I said, good. I said, I'm glad he was on top of it, but I'm glad he came down. And then we told him later, it's, she shouldn't do that. <laughs> but I didn't, you don't want to like just, Sharon could tell you a lot of stories about him. Um, we had, you know, we had a space between children, and then we had Kelly, who is as close to an angel as possible, which gave us 
courage to have a fifth. <laughs> and Bruce was born with horns, but the Lord just like turned him into, he's the one that brings all these people in our house, and he loves the Lord, I'm glad to say. Uh, I remember my dad, and we were in Manila, and my dad is incredibly courteous with my mom. And, you know, he was a widower for five years, so I think my parents treasure each other probably more than most. And I never heard my dad really contradict my mom. I, I know he does, but not in front of me, except when I was about 14 and I was very small for my age. And I wanted to do some stuff in Manila, but I would need to take public transportation. And I was all about it, you know. And my mom said, Bruce, you're old enough, but you're not big enough yet. <laughs> and my dad said, he is big enough. He said, just be careful, be home by. And I was like, yeah, dad. <laughs> uh, but I think that was a good choice. My mom's concern for our safety was good as well. Um, or now, uh, I have a couple sons that like to jump off high places into water, you know, so I just say, make sure the water's deep and tell mom after the fact. Uh, but you know, I remember my dad telling me years ago, he's still alive and he's still really active in ministry, and reduced, but still active, he's 94. But he said, um, the greatest hindrance in recruiting young people to go into the mission field, and he's thinking now especially more, uh, ends of the earth is parents that would, are unwilling to release their kids and it's hard I remember my, when my mom died we li lived with my grandparents for five years and uh, they used to say that the hardest, one of the hardest days of their life was when my dad and mom left with my oldest brother two years old on a boat to go to the Philippines mm -hmm. my grandma said I thought I would die mm -hmm. but we knew that's what the Lord had for um, so we just get snared by many things. We're snared by the fear of man, you know. And that paralysis begins in Jerusalem, I think, in Judea, and it, it, it begins in our hearts. And in some ways, I think it's easier to go far away. Like I talked to my daughter about this. We have a beachhead of ministry at our church in Haiti. And it's, so we take trips there, and in some ways it's easier to be a witness there. You know, the people are so receptive, they're happy you're there, you're there and gone. It's much easier than being a witness here, here in America. Now, there's other hardships. The couple that live there, they've sacrificed a lot to be there, but um, I think sometimes it's, it's easier overseas. Uh, fear of real or imagined danger paralyzes us. Think of the upper room, John 19.10. The disciples uh, had the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Uh, and you could say, who could blame them? Uh, but, of course, the Lord turned that around when he appeared to them, and he was kind to them. He understood their fears, but he, he just confronted them with his resurrected person. And then the Holy Spirit came, came down upon them. And you go from the doors locked for fear of the Jews to Acts 17 when it says that they turned the world upside down. And it was that same ragtag, fearful group of people 
who were animated by the risen Christ in his spirit. And they were then playing with house money. And they were free. They were liberated. Uh, and I long to be liberated like that too. Um, I think our sort of Jerusalem, Judea fear is social rejection. That fear of being canceled. Um, it's so powerful that you might recall that Peter, even after Peter had become a bold witness for Christ, he regressed the fear of man ensnared him in Antioch when he had crossed racial bounds and he was starting to hang out and enjoy fellowship with uh, this influx of Gentile Christians and he heard that some of the heavy hitters, you know, the, the, the theological watchdogs were coming from Jerusalem and he, he stepped away from them. And Paul said, Paul confronted him and said, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The fear of man even took over Peter. So it's like we're careful not to be caught being too passionate about anything. You know, we're committed up to a point. We play it safe. Uh, years ago, I was reading um, the novel Lord Jim by uh, Joseph Conrad, and he spoke of older sailors who are now determined to lounge safely through existence. That line haunts me. The determination to, uh, to lounge safely through existence. So the fear of derision inhibits missions. You know, in fact, even in Nehemiah, they, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, it will not be done. And there was even media pressure uh, back in Jerusalem. It says, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Nehemiah said that. There was all this, there was the danger of being, there was the problem of being far from home. There was the danger of getting proper resources. There was physical danger. But highlighted in the book of Nehemiah is this, the jeering of other people, the mockery, um, so we just uh, we just need to be wise with this. I mean, it's kind of clear, right? This the fear of man, fear of women, fear of people. It tends to paralyze us. Uh, and then lastly, I just talk about the, the disease. Of, and la last night, Jordan talked about awakening from apathy. I, I find in my own life, you just get tired. Um, and, and, and then Ryan talked about that. He, he said the word is weary. You get weary. You get tired. You've got little kids around your feet. You've got older kids with bigger issues. You've got, um, you know, you got a mortgage. You've got, you're not feeling well. There's the discrepancy between where you wish you were and where you actually are. And all this stuff starts weighing us down. And, you know, some of the older true psychologist of the church. You know, psychology means the study of the soul, and they came up with this list of the seven deadly sins, and one of them was acedia, or spiritual sloth. It's apathy. It's a disinclination to pursue the means of grace. It's, it's almost like we get myopic, uh, crippled by our own self-involvement. So someone talks about missions, they're like, what? Like, I can't I can't get through this next hour. Um, 
you just get sad. In fact, it's amazing to me. In the Garden of, of Gethsemane, when the disciples fall asleep on three different occasions, it says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, when Jesus rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Um, so, uh, just as boldness then can be a mask, I think boldness can be a mask for anger or arrogance in ministry. That's a danger. Prudence is a virtue that can also mask cowardice. And so, again, this, this, this calls for a lot of discernment. In 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West today. From ancient times, declining courage has been considered the beginning of the end. And then a guy, a gr a really a great thinker, he's a Catholic man, he's from Germany. He said the lack of courage to accept injury and the incapability of self-sacrifice belong to the deepest sources of psychic illness. All neuroses have as a common symptom an egocentric anxiety, a tense and self-centered concern for security. He wrote this like in the 1950s. The inability to let go, in short, the kind of love for one's own life that leads straight to the loss of life, it is a very significant and by no means accidental that modern psychology frequently quotes scripture Whoever loves his life will lose it. The ego will become involved in ever greater danger the more carefully one tries to protect it. It's powerful. But so that's the problem. But the challenge is our Lord tells us to follow him. He calls us to mission, and all mission involves risk. Whether you're going to a closed country or whether you're summoning the courage to, to uh, speak to your neighbor or whether you're even giving cups of cold water and it takes courage because you're giving up some of the other time that you're nervous about. All mission involves risk. All true mission involves embracing risk on some level. Uh, you know, Paul says, don't look out for your own interest, but look out for the interest of others. Be like Christ, like Jesus, who emptied himself for us. Uh, and you see the challenge in Nehemiah. So risk is not new. It's inherent to following Jesus. Um, and there's so many verses I can't, I totally over-prepared. Um, I'm 63, I should be over this. But it's so, like, this is such an important topic. For instance, John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's John 15, 20. Or Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And... Luke 9, Luke 14, it's all, it's all over the place. 
um, biblical examples abound. Like if you read through Hebrews 11, um, Abraham, Moses, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, that was the safe place, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like really integrated, like Daniel. They were integrated in a pagan culture, and they, they, they excelled there. It's, in fact, Daniel passed everyone in the lore of Babylon. But they had this, this is how we have to be somehow, like to, to in but not of. And, and may God help us to be that way. But they had convictions that ran deep and strong and true. They knew what hill to die on. And they were all literally willing to die to honor God. Or the Apostle Paul. You know, staying alive is not, of course we want to stay alive, right? But it's not the main priority. And Paul, I mean, Paul is nuts. Think of this. He goes to Lystra. At first, they celebrate him like he's a god. Next thing, he starts saying some stuff that runs countercultural. They they throw rocks at him. They drag him out of the city. His partners come and find him. He comes to, and he goes back in the city. What's wrong with him? He's amazing. Jesus says, don't worry about those who can only kill the body. What? Are you kidding? I'm worried about someone that might think I'm weird. <laughs> don't, don't worry about those that can kill the body. Worry about he who could throw you into hell. And then Paul just says this amazing, like, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage... Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Um, I do not count my life. That's Philippians 1, 20 to 23. Or Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then you look up in, in Revelation when God has this, I mean, John has this vision of heaven, and he sees that those who have been martyred, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And it's said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, Jim Elliott, we heard this earlier, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And a year later, he, he was martyred along with four other young men, late 20s, uh, five widows. But now there's a thriving church in that area. You'd say, what a waste. What a total waste. They were careful. They weren't foolhardy. They did all their as much homework as they could. They did everything they could to, to wisely bridge into that community. But there was risk involved. 
It's just biblical realism. And I saw that with my older brother, Russ, recently, because he's, he's very, very busy in Africa because the, the children are so... Uh, what time is that? It doesn't glare. The, the, the children there are so desperately needy, you know, and they, they don't come, like, with a, um, a cough or something. They usually come when there's, they're really in trouble. And so he's very busy, but he's, he's almost 70, and he had to be evacuated like eight years ago because he had renal failure. They suspected he'd been poisoned. Um, he's, he's got high blood pressure. He's, he, he, he should retire, you know, <laughs> but he's pushing it, you know. And so then with the pandemic, the mission said he has to hit these certain standards. You know, they have, re they have medical requirements for their missionaries. He's like, Bruce, just pray that I can get past this test so I can go back. You know, that was a few years ago. Then this time, post-pandemic, you know, with COVID and everything, he said, look, at, he, he and his wife, Mel, he said, our five kids are grown. They love the Lord. We've talked to all of them. I'm going to die someplace. I can just sit in an apartment somewhere where I can go out there where they desperately need me. And and Mel will be cared for if I die because of the community there. You know? He said it like so matter of fact, you know? Uh, I th but I think his instincts are right. Well, I'm going to race through this. I, there's supposed to be discussion. What do you think? <laughs> I'll never get invited back. <laughs> I know. I'm getting better with this, too. We have a men's group now, and it's full of, like, rich discussion and instead of one talking head... But I'm regressing with you. I mean, do you have any thoughts? I know I'm like a fire hydrant, probably. Yeah. A magpie that drank too much coffee. All right, some remedies. Settle what matters most. Like we heard this morning, clarity. What matters most? Jesus makes it so easy. I mean, applying it is hard, but... Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Clarify that. Settle that. Resettle that. It's what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Like that's when I was a youth pastor, you know. I tried to make as few rules as possible. But you have to make some rules. But it's like get, get kids to see the beauty of Christ. Get them to say yes. Get them to love the Lord Try to uh, guide them to love the Lord so much that it pushes to the side those things that displease Him. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. I saw Nehemiah, your servant this morning, your servants who delight in revering your name. That's Nehemiah 1.11. Isaiah 1.8.13. Let God be your fear. Let Him be your dread and he will be your sanctuary. So, first of all, you love, love the Lord, and if you don't, ask him to help you, because he's very kind. You know, we're reading through Gentle and Lowly. It's killing us. <laughs> Just killing us. Read that book every day, and remember how kind Jesus is, and then fear him. That The fear of the Lord if that's in place, it will mitigate, it won't 
eradicate perhaps, but it will diminish all the lesser fears. If I feared God, I wouldn't be so afraid to have that conversation with a friend who needs help or with my neighbor or whatever else. Um, count the cost in any endeavor. You, you know, there's been five books written about that rescue of my grandparents and mom and two uncles. And I remember once it went out with a youth group and my uncle was with us and he was reading from a book and he couldn't, he, he cried, he couldn't read. Because 90, 90 paratroopers from the 11th Airborne, they were lined up and they were told that it was a suicide mission. They said, it is unlikely that you'll return. And so they said, they gave him a choice. They said, if anyone chooses not to go, take a step back. And this guy, his, in, in the book, one of the men that was there, said, for a million dollars, 1940, million dollars, none of us would step back. Can you imagine? That's to rescue, it, that was an incredibly noble thing that they did, but the great committee, we're trying to save people from a death far worse um, than what they would have known in that prison camp. Settle the question. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. You grasp the trunk of the love of God and the fear of God, it shakes all the branches. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, realize the reality of heaven, the reality of hell. There's a rescue again far greater. Then look to the Lord in prayer. Pray for wisdom. Uh, pray for wisdom not to overreact. You know, they actually, in the third century, they had to put a kibosh on, in, in Carthage. There was thousands of believers who were lobbying to get martyred. I mean, it's like, what? They were safety averse. It was nuts. They had to say, slow down, folks, you know, but that's not our danger. That's not our danger. So pray for courage, you know, the core, heart. And I, I didn't really think through, but I love Tolkien. I love Middle Earth. I know Jesse does too. It's because the, the, uh, the power of a little band of people against all odds going into the darkness and doing it in a way that's actually cheerful at times, but they're all helping each other. They know they're outnumbered. But the courage is incredible. And uh, I love Jared Tolkien. We probably have a lot of disagreements, but I think he understood the gospel, and it's insinuated into that book. But uh, pray for courage. Pray for heart. I've got these great verses on this. Uh, and then wait on the Lord. The church began and missions began while people were waiting on the Lord. And Jordan covered that so beautifully. And then look to Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The, the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. He heard, think of what he witnessed. He witnessed Jesus telling uh, th th this thief that today you will be with me in paradise. He witnessed Jesus while he's dying, asking John to make sure his mother would be cared for. And then he heard Jesus say, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we need to have that heart. Like Jesus says, pray for your enemies. 
And so the assumption is there are enemies. It's not denial. Uh, the best way to deal with enemies is to ask the Lord to bless them. And as we do that, he'll soften our hearts. It, it's not denial. It's a deeper affirmation. We pray where the Spirit of the Lord, there's freedom. Uh, in, in Acts 4.31, early on in the church, they're really suffering. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. That is awesome. It's not them. It's the Lord. They're just welcoming Him. And then rest in the Lord. His grace precedes all our efforts. Uh, and his, his power is made perfect in our weakness. And then last thing, we plan, and the, but then we act. And with missions, you can measure and measure and measure. I'm guessing that your church measured very carefully before the Vernon Project. But there came a time when you had to say, let's do it. And there's cost, right? There's probably a lot of people you like that are going to that church. But you count the cost. You say, it's so worth it, right? Uh, what, what does he keep saying in Nehemiah? The Lord strengthened their hands for the work. So there's a quote from a, philosopher, a Greek philosopher, Pericles, that has really stuck with me. He said, we dare most liberally where we have reflected best. So deep reflection may bring us to places that appear really radical, but it's sort of like gospel common sense. If God really is God, if heaven is, there, is real, and hell is real, and like John Piper says, it's like line dot. We, we live for the line instead of being caught up in our little myopic spot, paralyzed at our little spot. A ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are made for. There's this amazing freedom of trusting and obeying. And a place, it's a killer. I encourage you to read 1 Samuel 13 and 14. And there's this impasse between uh, the, the, the Philistines and Israel. And Israel is paralyzed because the Philistines have so many more people the Israel doesn't even, they can't get to a blacksmith because all the blacksmiths were in Philistia and they're not about to help them. Their weapons are less. <clears throat> Paul is getting more, Saul is getting more and more ingrown. Asedia is, it's like Theoden in uh, Middle Earth, if you read that. Like he's, he's listening to all the wrong voices and instead of being a king of valor, he's capitulating to cowardice. And David goes to his uh, armor bearer, and he said, or Jonathan, excuse me, Jonathan refuses to concede to this communal paralysis. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison on the other side. Let's go over to the outpost. Perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. That is so gutsy. <laughs> Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That is like beef and ale. 1 Samuel 14, 6. Nothing can hinder that. So let's give it a go. 
And the Lord honored that. Versus hanging back, hesitant, reluctant, like his father, endlessly measuring, action dying the death of a thousand endless qualifications. Uh, Jonathan is bold, he's decisive. Nothing will ever be accomplished if all possible objections must first be overcome. Samuel Johnson said that our Ecclesiastes 11.4, whoever watches the wind will not plant, whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Uh, Where measure for measure Shakespeare, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we might win by fearing to attempt. So there's this sort of divine chutzpah, not born of arrogance, looking to cut people's ears off, not virtue signaling that we're braver than you are. I mean, the, the virtue signaling on the right and the left is off the charts. It's not that at all. It's a love for God that fills you with, with this robust sense of possibility and freedom. I'm going to read one more quote. I read this from Tim Keller the other day. The impulse of self-preservation kills courage, but when your personal fate is no longer what you're living for, when your own ideal life scenario or perfect health and a perfect marriage and perfect children and a perfect job and a perfect church and control over everything, when that's no longer what you're clinging to and demanding in life, when all you want is the glory of God to be put on display through your existence, that's when God will begin to fill you with overcoming courage. That wall was finished in 52 days. That's close to a miracle. Jordan said there's no miracles in Nehemiah. It's close. It's close. Uh, it was a God thing. And then the dedication was this incredible time of joy. And, and, and Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, so I've heard it said that a sign of true courage is cheer. You know, and we, we get so bogged down and discouraged and depressed and the more the Lord fills us with his gospel courage, the more cheerful we'll be. We'll live large even amid dangerous times. We'll be, be like Peter. It just kills me. And John 21, 5, you know, Peter's, he's, he's denied the Lord. Um, he, he fell asleep three times. I mean, just flagrant. Uh, I'll never deny you. And like hours later he does. And but Jesus was so kind to him, the Lord looked at him, and he re Peter repented, then he, he, he saw the risen Christ. He was there on Pentecost, but remember Jesus, after he rose, he had 40 days before he ascended to heaven, and in one of those days, he went back to where he first saw Peter on the Sea of Galilee. And what are they doing? They're out fishing. They've been out fishing all night. They got nothing. Jesus calls from the shore. They didn't recognize him. It was a hundred yards away. Maybe there was fog, whatever. He calls out to them. He says, throw it down on the other side. And they got 153 fish. And then John goes, that's got to be Jesus. This is a God thing. And Peter, he takes off like he, he had some, or he put something on or took it off, whatever. He leaped into the water. 
and swam into Jesus. He couldn't wait. He was like if you have an Irish setter, you know, <laughs> no one else likes you, but your dog always will. Peter was like a happy puppy. He couldn't wait to get to Jesus. And Jesus transformed him. Pretty soon he's preaching. He's preaching in ways that are... It's when you consider the denial and what he's doing, preaching on the day of Pentecost, it's because he really saw the Lord and the Lord's purposes became so beautiful to him and it, it mitigated other fears. So like, what do we do? Like I think of our church in Haiti, like no one's going to Haiti anymore. And it's understandable. Here's the question we should have talked about. So what do you do? Say no, because we want to be careful, yes. But, or what about the unreached peoples? The only way to ever do it is to assume some risk. What about your neighbor? Even in a much, the greater includes the lesser. It, it, even in a smaller way, to risk going to the next step, it's, there's a cost to it. But the Lord can help us. Uh, it's 11 o'clock. 12. 12. <laughs> you can see what I put through our church regularly. Uh, it, it, are we going to eat lunch? Yeah, I mean, any amens, any... Um, Amen to the whole thing. Any, um, yeah, you know, the frustration is, to like, when I'm done preaching, I talk to people in church, and then I get their perspective, and I'm like, it's good I didn't talk to you first, because it was long enough already. Because I would love to, to extrapolate your reflections, uh, whatever they might be in all of this, but keep processing it together. <coughs> I think your church already is is living out these things, you know. I, we need to do better at Dover. I wish I could say I woke in Denville one day and we had this image of reaching uh, Dover 70% Hispanic. But it, we didn't. Someone gave us a building. So our church is regional like every church. But since we're there... We've got to figure out ways to reach that community, even if it means channeling them into a, a like-minded Spanish-speaking church, you know. How, how do we do that? Like, it's so easy just to flatline, so. Jesse, would you pray? Sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Father, thank you for, Bruce, we thank you for just the, the word and the, the wisdom that we've um, just heard together and we we pray that as we um, process our own fears and are tempted to fight or flight um, that we would find the center the grounding the wisdom the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom uh, and uh, being able to um, act and encourage when necessary knowing when to be wise in uh, uh, safety and 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 what all that looks like for each of us and and how we can do that all for your glory ultimately underneath the fear of the Lord. So we, we just pray that you would give us that wisdom that only you provide and that you would be um, our first priority in this world and in, in our culture that we would risk uh, for your glory. So we pray that you would do this all in our hearts and uh, that you'd be glorified through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>